Folks, we're about to have a conversation with Victor Laval, who is an incredible writer. His latest book that uh, really grabbed me was The Battle of Black Tom, but you may know him from Slap Boxing with Jesus, or the, uh, the Big Machine, The Devil in Silver, novellas like Lucretia. He's won the uh, Whiting Writers Award, United States Artist Ford Fellowship, numerous things, teaches at Columbia, also the Shirley Jackson Award. And Victor, welcome. Good to have you with us. Hey, it's good to be here. Victor, I have to start this way. So I was interviewing another author in a bookstore, and one of my producers was with me, and I was kind of you know, wandering around the bookshelves and saying, what do I want to read I haven't read before? And your book popped out, The Battle of Black Tom. I said, oh, that looks interesting. And one of my producers said, you should read it. Said, hey, this is a really good book. So I picked it up and, uh, and went home with it and, um, and started reading it. And I thought when I bought it, I was going to read this, like, detective novel. I had just, you know, Walter Mosley's a friend, and I just finished interviewing him not long ago again. Right. <laughs> I said, oh, I discovered somebody new. Let me read this. But then your detective novel started switching. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, to places I did not expect to go. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, you know, I've discovered, now i discovered your work, and I'm, I'm uh, enthralled, so it's a pleasure to have you with us. Hey, it's good to be here, and the, the, I would say the funny thing is uh, most of the time, uh, one of the most positive reactions I get to my work is, uh, I thought I was picking up this, and then it turned into that, you know. And usually that's a good thing. Yeah, no, no, it's a fantastic thing, you know. Yeah. And, and so so when I read the beginning of the book, um, the, the, and the way you, the, the, at the beginning when you dedicate this to H.P. Lovecraft in the novella, a tribute to him, um, it was pretty amazing to me, having known who he is. This is kind of an incredible writer, but also a deeply racist human being. Yes. Uh, so talk about that journey from Lovecraft to this book and keeping a couple of his major figures inside the book as well. Well, uh, so the reason it's dedicated to H.P. Lovecraft is because I grew up loving horror, horror books, horror movies. Ever since I was like maybe six or seven, that's the, the kind of... Uh, literature and entertainment that like m meant the world to me and he was one of those ones like it was him stephen king clive barker uh peter straub shirley jackson handful of others uh, who i got at a young enough age that they basically like seeped into my blood and you know made me feel like i, I was beginning to understand the kind of writer that i wanted to be um and so i read lovecraft maybe not at seven realistically, probably more like 12. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but the thing that was amazing to me was that I did not pick up on or understand his racism and his sexism and his anti-Semitism and like all the things that, that uh, all the groups of people that he feared and hated, his anti-immigrant aspects and stuff. Somehow it was like on the page, but I was maybe young enough that I ignored it or like I read the stories that didn't have, there are some stories where he's really, really, uh, you can't, you can't ignore it. Right. And there's others where you, it kind of, it's like a, in the background. Um, but when I read him again, maybe when I was like 15, 16, 17, then I would be like, did this white dude just say this? <laughs> this? You know, and uh, get into like a whole different mode uh, and then turn angry. But, you know, it's like that kind of thing, like, a, you, you know, um, you have that uncle who says a lot of terrible things but he's still your uncle and he still helped raise you. And so there's a way that you can't just cut him off like you would a stranger. Right. Right. And it made me think also of, um, when you were talking to my father who, 
who um, loved Wagner <laughs> and would always get in these arguments with his friends because my father was Jewish and, uh, and he would always get in these arguments with his friends about, yeah, he's an anti-Semite, but his music is amazing, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's the hard thing is uh, I think um, like if you don't love something, it's much easier to make an easy line in the sand about whether you can, you know, you should, uh, you should accept it or not. Uh, but there's so many great, like almost without question, there's the people you love, you scratch the surface a little bit and there's something a little ugly in there. Mm -hmm. So to me, I think the question of like adulthood is how do I reconcile? I love something, but I also criticize it. So then what was the journey for you to take, to, to write this Battle of Black Tom, to take this character you developed, Tommy Tester, a 20-year-old black man in Harlem, and keep two of the major figures of Lovecraft's book uh, in there, this Robert Suridum, if I say his name right, Suridum, and the Detective Malone. What, what, so, so what was it that drove you to do that and to turn it on its head? I mean, what happened? What were you thinking about when you did that? Well, uh, so I had just turned in a draft of a, uh, a novel that I have coming out in a little bit, and I had a little break in the summer of like 2015. Uh, but right after you finish the book, I, don't, I mean, different people are different ways, but it was almost like I had trained for a marathon, and then the marathon's over, and there's a part of me that feels like I'd like to run a little bit more, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and so I had maybe like a month, and I just said, I'm just itching to just write a thing, but it should be a short little thing, um, and not necessarily the same as the book that I just finished. And then it was the summer of 2015, and it's not like it was brand new news in the summer of 2015, but it was becoming, it was more in the news uh, just the, the, the long list of uh, police shootings of black people um, going on and people getting out in the streets and people arguing about it, talking about it, uh, having uh, much more visible across lots of different communities conversations about uh, police violence on black people. And I was just sort of sitting there like that was bubbling in my head that summer. And then for whatever reason, just like the magic of things, I had picked up Lovecraft just to read through again, try to figure out where I wanted to go for, uh, for what I wanted to write. And I reread this one story of his called The Horror at Red Hook. Right. And that is like a, maybe uh, when I was speaking earlier, one of his you can't avoid the racism and anti-immigrant stuff in that one. And so suddenly in my head is like, a, you remember the old Reese's Pieces commercials, the peanut butter and the chocolate <laughs> <laughs> sort of go together uh and the uh the so lovecraft plus like black lives matter i just said like i think i could put these two together in a way that would be really interesting and would argue with lovecraft and the old story and this even this whole genre of fiction that i grew up loving but that has some very messed up uh feelings about different uh groups of minorities for lack of a better term i mean get out did the same thing Get out to the same thing exactly. No, no, no. I know, and 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 I think, I mean, I, I the the twists and turns you put Tommy Tester through, um, in getting to this place and bringing out Detective Malone again for the entire second half of the book, which was one of Lovecraft's figures, this white yes. Irish cop, um, was a really interesting twist as well. Oh, and well, God, there's where, where are we going? Is Tester coming back? What's happening here? Right. Well, you know, like, so the, the halfway point of the, of the book, the first half is really on some level, just like a whole new story 
except for like when Suidam shows up. Um, and what I was interested in was this idea of like, when could I, how could I start that story and tell that story for a while? And then for those readers who also knew the old Lovecraft story, the sort of pleasure and shock of when you jump and that way that now suddenly that old story has a new perspective because I've been telling you a whole different set of life and lives that have been going on in what would have been the background in a Lovecraft story is now the foreground in my story. And then when I mash them together, my hope, the expectation is you can never look at the old story the same way because those supposedly inhuman people who are you can't understand because they're just uh, savages or chaotic, you know that's no longer true. So now how does that change the story altogether? And to me, that kind of the way of looking at that is, is so deeply important in the world we're in now in this 21st century. When you take, I can think of a number of things, even the wonderful movie Lincoln that I really adored, and it was a great film. But, you know, they had these three black yeah. characters in the movie that were really important to that part of history, but they were never really developed, nor the relationship with the white folks they were with. And it made me think of that when I was reading your book and how you wrote this book in terms of Lovecraft, that what gets left out and what gets unsaid sometimes has to be re-said and retold so the broader tale can be heard. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely Actually, uh, one of the biggest uh, inspirations for uh, the book is uh, a novel called uh, Wide Sargasso Sea uh, mm-hmm. by Jean Reese. And uh, in that one, so Jean Reese is a white woman, but she's raised in the Caribbean. Uh, I can't remember where, Antigua maybe, or something like that. Um, and for her, she, when she was a reader, one of the things that always was interesting to her was when she read uh, Charlotte Bronte's novel, Jane Eyre, um, Mr. Rochester's first wife is just described as the mad woman in the attic who he married in Jamaica. And it's just this passing thing. And then later on, she comes to a really ugly end. And Jean Reese was sort of like, I'm interested in the woman who Charlotte Bronte wasn't interested in. And I want, I'm thinking about what her story might be, how she got to marry Mr. Rochester and how she ended up in the state she was in. And so she writes this novel, White Sargasso Seas, maybe 200 pages, less than that. And it's this brilliant, it's not even a retelling. It's basically just like saying, Charlotte Bronte couldn't be bothered or couldn't understand the humanity of this woman, but I can, and I'm going to write it. And then she writes this novel that is easily, I would say, um, the equal of Jane Eyre on the level of literary intelligence and power and all that. Um, and that, so that idea uh, of being able to do that with a book, and if you do it well enough uh, to be able to kind of go toe to toe with a great book or a great writer, I thought was like I, I want to try that too. So, do you? This is a bit of a digression, maybe. Maybe we could have started this way, but is there a piece of the book you'd just like to read? I want to give our listeners a sense of your writing. Too. <laughs> you did. <clears throat> and so, do you? This is a bit of a digression, maybe. Maybe we could have started this way, but is there a piece of the book you'd just like to read? I want to give our listeners a sense of your writing and maybe about Tommy Tester or whoever you'd like to do, just to give people a, a feel for what you're saying to us in your words. I would love to do that, and I can do it in like two minutes because I don't actually own a copy of my book. Uh, <laughs> you really but don't I own a copy of your book? <laughs> I really don't. That's, isn't that the crazy thing? I've given, to, given them away, but I'll pull up a PDF, talk about the modern age. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Uh, 
And in two minutes, I will read it to you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so while you're doing that, while you're getting that ready, I mean, you know, I, it's also, you, as I told you, when I bought the book, I thought at first I was reading this detective novel, and then it turned into something completely different, obviously. So your, 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 your love of the otherworldliness, of the shadow world, of the world that we can feel but we don't see, I mean, this is, that, that, that's, I, I, that just drew me right in. Well, that too, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess I, uh, I take it for granted that uh, whatever world I'm living in, you know, there's two or three or five others uh, kind of going on at the same time. And on one level, you're talking about like real human beings, uh, like, you know, obviously, you know, my wife has her entirely other life that when I'm not around or my super, things like that. But also, I would say growing up in a religious household, um, the uh, uh, conversations about the idea of there being a next world and in that world there are people who we know and love or in the next world there are there is a god who is thinking of us and blah 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 um all that stuff one way or the other also um i always found very interesting uh partly on the level of like conduct how should i act if there is a god and that god has rules for me but even just to say that there's like a realm outside of what I, my senses can pick up. Do you know, like that just was always very fascinating to me as a kid. And that feeling sometimes when you're very little, you wake up in the middle of the night and you almost think you saw out of the corner of your eye, like something there. So you say, was that a ghost? Was that an angel? Was that a, obviously like just a trick of my memory? Uh, whatever it might be. But as a kid, I was very susceptible to that idea that those other places exist, and I just kind of never lost it. And but it's also, I think, the way you twisted this, because I mean, Lovecraft himself was into all this kind of cosmic horror, right? I mean, he, yes, he, he created this stuff, but but really deeply racist. And, and yes, and you took that same spirit, that same otherworldliness, the same power beyond us, and s twisted it on him and the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, I think like uh, one of the things that makes Lovecraft, for all his problems, makes him a genius is that um, he took uh, – so basically like if you read about his biography and stuff, he's raised in a family that like once had money and thought very highly of themselves but had fallen on pretty hard times. His father dies of, they think, syphilis in an institution. His mother seems like she has some real mental illness problems. Um and the way that that all kind of plays out in his life is that he's taught, don't go to the outside world. Everyone is out to get you. No, nothing out there is safe. We're the only ones that are safe. But then the, then the life he's living on the inside of the house is also completely, is largely sort of uh, unpredictable and fallen on hard times and all this stuff. So it's somewhat understandable that he grew up really afraid of everything, you know? And then you add to that, uh, like, a lot of times when people are afraid of everything, they start coming up with rationalizations about why those other people and those other things should be feared. You know, it's pretty rare that somebody is just anxious about the world and says, you know, I realize it's just that I feel powerless. Instead, it's more like, oh, these people are taking all our money. These people are taking all our power and they blame it on others. So Lovecraft comes up with all these sort of otherworldly creatures who embody that feeling 
really, really well. I mean, to my to my mind, I feel like what he did great is he turned white anxiety into monsters. Mm. But but the monsters were not obviously white anxiety. You know, so as a result, those monsters in Lovecraft can be environmental disaster for some people. They can be just aging and death or they can be cosmic indifference. Like that was the thing he did right. Like he, he didn't make it too clear what he wanted them to be. And as a result, they could be almost anything. And, and, and manipulated by people like Tommy Tester and others. That's right. And, well, manip- and, then, and be manipulated by it. And be, exactly. Uh, and, uh, and in Tommy's case, what I also wanted to talk about was like, uh, like one person looks out at that kind of in that horror universe and sees these ultra powerful beings and lives in fear of them. Um, but another kind of person looks at these ultra powerful beings and thinks, I want to be like them. You know, it's not necessarily the best move. And the book, the book definitely suggests that, uh, that kind of, uh, ambition or arrogance can, you can be punished for it. Um, but I liked the idea. I mean, I grew up on like hip hop in the eighties and certainly one of the ideas that was at the heart of it was this, the world is mine. Like Nas said, uh, uh, like I'll take it. I'll take everything, and then sometimes you know that bites you in the, that bites you too. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse, so I, I won't say curse. But it does bite but, you. But that's, <laughs> that's right. And uh, and uh, but that's its own lesson to learn. So uh, I was thinking I could even just read from the beginning since uh, it sort of leads you into the world. Um, oh, cool. And, yeah, we, we, we're introduced to Tommy Tester in the beginning. That, yes. That, yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And uh, I could read a page or a yeah. page or two of that. Yeah. Go right All ahead. Right. Take your time. Yeah. People who move to New York always make the same mistake. They can't see the place. This is true of Manhattan, but even the outer boroughs too, be it Flushing Meadows in Queens or Red Hook in Brooklyn. They come looking for magic, whether evil or good, and nothing will convince them it isn't here. This wasn't all bad, though. Some New Yorkers had learned how to make a living from this error in thinking. Charles Thomas Tester, for one. The morning of most importance began with a trip from Charles's apartment in Harlem. He'd been hired to make a delivery to a house out in Queens. He shared the crib in Harlem with his ailing father, Otis, a man who'd been dying ever since his wife of 21 years expired. They'd had one child, Charles Thomas, and even though he was 20 and exactly the age for independence, he played the role of dutiful son. Charles worked to support his dying dad. He hustled to provide food and shelter and a little extra to lay on a number from time to time. God knows he didn't make any more than that. A little after 8 a.m., he left the apartment in his gray flannel suit. The slacks were cuffed but scuffed and the sleeves conspicuously short. Fine fabric but frayed. This gave Charles a certain look, like a gentleman without a gentleman's bank account. He picked the brown leather brogues with nicked toes then the seal brown trooper hat instead of the fedora. The trooper's hat, the trooper hat's brim showed its age and wear, and this was good for his hustle too. Last, he took the guitar case, essential to complete the look. He left the guitar itself at home with his bedridden father. Inside, he carried only a yellow book, not much larger than a pack of cards. As Charles Thomas Tester left the apartment on West 144th Street, He heard his father plucking at the strings in the back bedroom. The old man could spend half a day playing that instrument and singing along to the radio at his bedside. Charles expected to be back home before midday, 
his guitar case empty and his wallet full. Who's that writing, his father sang, voice hoarse but the more lovely for it. I said, who's that writing? Before leaving, Charles sang back the last line of the chorus, John the Revelator. He was embarrassed by his voice, not tuneless, not tuneful at all, at least when compared with his dad. It, that that uh, I, 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 I have to tell you this, and I'm not, I'm not fawning here. I mean, I'm serious. I did, when I first read, opened the book, I fell in love with your writing. I really did. And, and so it led me to your other books, which another day we'll talk about. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll be happy to be back. So, but, but, so let me take a little twist here. So we have this piece where in the book, you know, he, this Sweetum is how you say his name, correct? I don't actually know how to pronounce his name either. I never heard it. Uh, <laughs> okay, so well, I always just think. We'll stumble through it together. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the, his father tells him two things because he's nervous about him going into this white world and what this guy might do or what might happen. So you can tell us what he, what he did. But one of the things he did was he gave him this song. So and there it is, Good In Your Face by Sun House. In your face, don't mind people grinning in your face. Yeah, just bear this in mind a true friend is hard to find. Don't you mind people grinning in your face? You know, your mother will talk about so what, you. Hey, why did you pick that your song? What did his daddy say? And why did you put that in there? First, I'm very happy that you played Sun House singing it instead of me. Uh, <laughs> I didn't uh, want to do that to you. I didn't much, much, about that. <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't sing, but uh, I could have uh, really hurt your uh, listeners with it. Uh, but uh, so Sun House is just, uh, I always think of him as one of the uh, blues greats that everybody knows. And then I'm always surprised when I meet how, well, how many people I meet who don't know him. Uh, and to me, he's, you know, he's just one of the best, if not the best. I love his voice and I love, um, the very, almost like apocalyptic nature of him. He's very, uh, like that one, uh, grinning in your face. He's basically like, don't trust anybody, right? Even your own family, just don't trust anybody. And that strikes me as a lesson I would like to give to my kids, uh, someday, hmm. um, as a, uh, pessimistic human being, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, he, Otis uh, gives him this song, but treats it almost, it's like a lesson, but also like a bit of magic, a bit of conjure music, you know, meant to uh, sort of um, protect his son on an almost spiritual or magical level, right? Or even an artistic level. And then he also gives him a razor. And the, uh, the razor is to protect him on a much more material uh, level. Uh, so that if he gets out to that white neighborhood and anything, anyone out there tries to stop him from coming back home to his dad, he tells him, you use this razor and you be sure you come back home to your father. So, I mean, there's, there's so much in here. That I think that, you know, I mean, one of the reasons I, I enjoy reading so many Latin American authors is their ability to take us into the surreal. Yes. And make it real. And there's something also about, you do similar things with your work, and there's something about also the black experience or the experience of any group that has lived through oppression. Yes. Where the surreal is real. 
Well, that's always the I always the thing I find interesting about uh, like being an American writer, a, a writer from the U.S., uh, and getting into conversations. Sometimes when I've published books uh, in certain environments, getting into conversations where they the essentially what they're saying is, why do you put in all this unrealistic stuff? And what the honest answer that I try to give to them is it's only unrealistic to you. I'm telling you that there are lots of people who live experiences that would make you think this can't be happening. There's no way this is true. And yet it is. Um, and that to me is the heart of, uh, the best magic realism, right? Like uh, the, the, those South American writers are not writing like people flying, uh, and disappearing and, all this kind of stuff because they just thought it would be cute. They're trying on some level to capture for you, not literally what happened in these countries where governments are being overthrown all the time, sometimes with the help of our government. Um, but to let you understand how it felt to literally one day walk into a school and be told none of those teachers who were here yesterday are, are back. And as far as you're concerned, they never existed. They're just gone. How do you make someone understand that feeling as opposed to just literally explaining what happened? And that's when you start to, at least for me, that's when I start to think, I think we should sprinkle a little magic in here. <laughs> so, you know, I'm wondering what you think about um, a couple of things here. I'm wondering what you think about the, the, the fact that Lovecraft um, will no longer be part of the, was the World Fantasy Awards, took him off the, yes. off the award. And it made me think about the battle going on in Baltimore, here where we're recording from, where, they're, where they want to uh, take down Confederate monuments. Um, one of the arguments I made to people was, let's not take them down, let's build other monuments around them and cause a discussion. Yes. Um, and and uh, like build a monument to Frederick Douglass or to, or to the black soldiers in the Civil War or to the abolition movement. Just build, you know, just let's do something that causes people to think. Um, but so I'm curious what you think about that, about Lovecraft, his visage being taken off um, of that award. Well, as far as like the award itself goes, I was uh, pretty all right with um, that change in part just because I didn't I don't see the point of any one award being specifically tied to one person. I mean, even within the world of horror and fantasy I mean, why couldn't the statue have been changed to the face of Stephen King or Shirley Jackson? You know, like there are so many individuals mm -hmm. who have made just uh, profound contributions to um, to the field that him getting prominence strikes me as just like many years back. Some people who really loved and knew him uh, decided that they would just go with this. And maybe they were like essentially running the executive committee and other people just said, like, I like him, too. I guess that's pretty good. And the people who might in some way feel uh, put off by this either weren't in the room at all or didn't feel comfortable enough in that room to argue back, right? And I feel like that's a little different because those um, – then, say, the Confederate monument thing, because those statues, uh, once they're given out, they go into an individual's home. They're not out in public, you know? So on some level, I would see the argument for like, well, why do I have to have this dude who said such terrible things and <laughs> believes such terrible things, like looking at me every day, if I win this award, 
uh, as opposed to like in Providence, Rhode Island, they have statues to him. No one is suggesting taking those public statues down, right? So I feel like that's a distinction that like I'm much happier. The the new award looks like a giant like spooky tree with a moon rising behind it. Right. And um, personally, I think that looks that will scare me, my wife and my kids more in the middle of the night. So I'm more for it, you know, as a choice. But as far as the Confederate uh, things go, I'm actually I feel uh, somewhat in agreement, if only because, um, well, one, it would bring me great pleasure to see the levels of uh, frenzy and anguish that would happen to all those people who think there should be a Confederate monument. If you then said, and right next to it, we're going to put a Frederick Douglass monument. Right. I would it would it would make me just personally like in a petty way happy to see all the arguments they would come up with about why we don't need two, we just need the old one. Uh, but then the other thing I would say is uh, there's um, I would say there's a good argument for the idea of making keeping those conf- I think keeping those Confederate statues and then just building the statues of say all those black people who fought against them or who were harmed by them, all those white people who fought against by them, fought against them or were harmed by them and just surrounding the, the old statues with the new ones. So like 10 statues of like uh, freed slaves around Robert E. Lee. And then I'm totally <laughs> for it. And, uh, and I would love to see that, but I don't know if it's ever going to go to that. <laughs> no, that, that, I, I completely agree that's what, that's what we should do here in Baltimore and everywhere else. And I also agree with you about the award. I was just curious how you felt about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, with all that. Um, the, the other thing that before we roll is is to, is to um, there's also Tommy Tester, the main character in this book, um, the, the, the Ballad of Black Tom, um, is a complex character. And even in this brief novella and how he comes back in the novella, you were able to kind of deal with this complexity and the anger in him also that kind of kind of just explodes around, I mean, what I think the subtext is, is all the racism that's been around him and what these monsters from beyond are doing. I mean, it's that, 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 that I mean, I, I really did appreciate kind of the complexity of this, of, of this guy, Tommy Tester. I really appreciate that. I mean, I definitely, um, I think uh, sometimes there's a conversation about the, uh, it's for every group, but as a speaking as a black American writer, thinking as a black American writer, uh, there can be these conversations or these arguments about, um, you know, there have been so many negative portrayals of black people in literature. Uh, the way to combat that is now we just need positive portrayals of people. But um, I, I just disagree with that, like completely, uh, in part because... Um, it's just as bad, at least to me, I think for art to pretend that anyone is a devil as they are an angel, right? Like neither one of those things is true. And that really good art, the point of good art is to say that all of these people who come across the page, all of these people you meet are as complex as you who is sitting there reading these pages and imagine. And then, uh, the journey of a good book is imagine if you were living inside this other person's experience and their body, even if they seem sort of like you on the surface, they're not, they're an individual moving through a system or a world that you might know somewhat, but not entirely. And so here's that journey. And so to me, I just thought like having Tommy be only 
the righteous uh, victim of racism was not realistic to my experience, right? I mean, like, there are various ways where I've experienced prejudice and racism and systematic this and that. And there's also just ways I've been a real jerk to my younger sister. Uh, I have cheated at card games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, like, uh, and if given the opportunity, maybe there's lots of other terrible things I would do if life had tre- if life had gone slightly different ways. Uh, so it's not worth it to pretend that somehow I was perfect, you know? Uh, so I think what the world needs is more complex characters, never like just good or bad characters. I deeply appreciate that. That's, that's, yeah, the complexity is important. And I will just close with this. I, I, I discovered as I was thinking about our conversation today that you, you like, um, our old friend Ta-Nehisi Coates is entering the world of comics. You've created this character, the destroyer. That's right. Coming yeah, yeah. To a store near you. <laughs> in May. Yeah, to a comic store near you and hopefully maybe a bookstore too at a certain point if they work things out. Uh, um, in like late May, May, I think it's May 25th or something like that. It'll come out. Well, we'll have to come back. When the Destroyer comes out, we'll come back and do a, a Destroyer conversation. I would love to do it. It's uh, in its way, it is actually uh, very, it's a cousin to Ballad of Black Tom, not on the level of story or anything like that, but on the level of mixing politics and entertainment it's absolutely like blood related i would say and 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 the book you've done does mix politics and entertainment i mean it it, it deals with the reality of 20th century racism uh and all its complexity and lovecraft and more and uh uh Victor Lavella, yeah i just uh, do do appreciate your writing and do deeply appreciate that you have taken your time with us today hey mark is really this was a pleasure and a great talk thank you for uh, inviting me on <laughs>